This week, as I was working on my message, I stumbled upon a, a blog post by a pastor who had said that he went to Amazon and just searched under books, just under books, various topics. And as I looked at some of the things that he was searching, the, the numbers were astronomically high. And I, to be honest, I kind of looked at it like, I don't think so. And so I had to go and test it myself. And sure enough, the guy was wrong. The numbers were actually higher. Uh, apparently, I went back and looked at the blog post. It was like three or four years old. And numbers have increased. And, and so I put in one of the search terms he had looked for, and that was happiness. And to my surprise, happiness had search results of 92,201. All right, so over 92,000 different search results. Now, that's not number of books. I'm sure there were some repeats in there. But that is... You know, on the topic of happiness, just under books, over 92,000 results. So that got me curious. So I started putting in a few more things. Um, I put in marriage, almost 200,000 search results on marriage. That's what the guy's blog post was about, and, and so uh, he was focused on that. And then he pointed out money. So I typed in money, and I found out that over 250,000 results come back. So I don't know if that means people want money more than marriage, or if, you know, maybe they need more money to keep their marriage. I don't know, but that, that's just other. So then I thought, okay, I know what the number one search term will be. Everyone says that sex is the most searched for keyword in Google. So I typed in sex in Amazon, and sure enough, 355,000 plus people, well, not people, but search results came back on the topic of sex. Well, my topic today is love. And so I was curious, and I wondered, would love be comparable? And I'll be honest, I thought love would be just underneath. I was so wrong. Because when you type in love, you would find over 660,000 search results. To me, this means that more than sex, more than money, more than even marriage, what we all long for is love. And yet, we are so confused on the subject. I mean, for instance, in one conversation, I could talk about my love for the Nebraska Cornhuskers, and yet I could also talk about my love for pizza, and I could also talk about how much I love my wife. It's the same word, and yet how do you even say, yeah, I love my wife and I love tacos? It just doesn't make sense. And even in those search results on Amazon, I, I kind of skimmed through some of the titles, a lot of them had to do with relationships. But even within relationships, we know that there's different types of love. That the way that I love my wife is different than the way I love my kids. And even that's different than the way I love my best friend. And yet we still use the same word. So I started thinking, all right, we got to turn to some experts. Who are the experts in our world? Who is it that talks about love a lot? Who, who is it that uh, writes about love? Who would let us know and give us a good definition for love. It was obvious. The top 100 billboard. I mean, our musicians sing about love all the time. And so I just started skimming through some of the songs, and I would go and then look at the lyrics. And I discovered that love was a feeling, uh, that love was clearly very, very temporary. Uh, love was something you fell into, and uh, it was very clear that love also appeared to be sex. And so that's what we learned. And yet I looked at that and thought, that is so, so wrong. Because you are not going to be able to convince me that the prostitute loves the man that's hired her. You're not going to be able to convince a kid that love is temporary. 
Because that kid needs to know my parents are for me and with me. And so I realized even our experts are wrong. And so we're left wondering then, well then what exactly is love? That's what this four-week series is about. We're going to be trying to get a better definition of love. And each week, we're going to fill in the blank. We're going to see that love is something. And what we're going to do is we're going to try and eliminate some of the ideas that the world has. Some of it, what they have is right. It's, it's all right. But there's something better. There's a better definition. Because I think if we run with the definition that our world puts out there, then we're probably not going to see love the way that we need to. But if we begin to understand how God intended love to be, now we're going to see it impact our marriages. It'll impact our parenting. It will impact our work relationships. It'll impact our neighborhoods. It'll impact our clubs. It will impact our lives. And not only will we see it impact us, and we end up changing the world of someone else, when we have a proper definition of love, it will change our world. That's what we're going to do for the next four weeks. We're going to study 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And instead of letting Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift, as fun as their songs might be, rather than letting them give us the definition of love, we're going to go back to the ancient documents of the scriptures, and we're going to see how does God define love. Because he's been giving a definition for centuries that has guided people. And so let's maybe go back and have a look at what he has there. So before we jump into 1 Corinthians, let me pray. Father, we're about to open up the scriptures, and this ultimately needs to be about what you have for us today. And so I just ask graciously that you would uh, help us to remember the things that I say that are absolutely in line and in sync with your scriptures. But if there is areas that I'm off, Lord, would you please stop those filters before they even come out of my mouth? Or would you just graciously let, graciously let us ignore them, forget them? May they just be like chaff in the wind, and may we get back to the root, to the core of what love truly is, because I believe you have something here for each and every person that you brought here to be a part of this this morning. And I pray that this would impact the lives of those who are listening. And it's in Jesus' name I pray for this. Amen. All right, so if you brought a Bible or you've got a Bible app on your phone, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you do not own a Bible, we have some on the back table. Feel free to take one of those. That is our gift to you. In fact, we uh, started running out of our the black covered version, so we went out and got some more. Uh, that's the English Standard Version. And so if you want one, uh, grab those new brown ones there. We now have two brown Bibles. It's confusing. So one is English Standard Version, which is what I tend to teach from. The other is New Living Translation, slightly more readable uh, version. Either one will work, okay? Please pick one of those up and take that with you and use it on a regular basis. Um, as you're opening to 1 Corinthians 13, uh, we at Riverwood have been studying the, the letter to the Corinthians since September of 2014. I didn't realize it was quite that long. We started all the way back in chapter 1, and we just kind of have broken it up into mini-series. And we've taken breaks here and there. Like just recently, we did our Christmas series, Seek. And then in January, we did the series New You. And last week, we did our State of the Church address. So if, by the way, if you consider Riverwood your home church and you missed last week's message, I would encourage you to go listen to it. Not because it was really great or anything, It'd just be good for you to hear, where was, how did Riverwood do last year, and where are we going? What, what do we hope to see happen in 2006, and how can we be a part of that? All right, so I'd encourage you to, to go and listen to that. But today, we now find ourselves ready to come back to 1 Corinthians, and we're ready for chapter 13. And it's 
perfect timing because here we are in February, the month that contains Valentine's, the, the holiday of love, right? And guys, you're probably starting to freak out like, oh man, Valentine's is on a Sunday this year. What am I going to do? You know, do I take her out on Saturday? But everyone's going to go out on Saturday. All right, guys, just take her to church, all right? It probably won't be that romantic, but it's on a Sunday this year. Next week, we have Jeff Linnell with us, so that will be gift enough. So like, hey, let's go check out the new worship pastor at Riverwood. Um, but otherwise, I can't give you any more help, guys. You're on your own. Uh, but we're going to look at love, the whole entire chapter of, of uh, 1 Corinthians 13, for the next four weeks. It's not a very big chapter, but there's a lot here. And today, we're going to do just verses 1 through 3. So read silently along as I read aloud. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing." Now, if you've been listening to me teach very long, you know that I am really, really big on context. All right? I, I do not feel comfortable just taking a passage and just kind of looking at it. All right? By the way, if you want to start a cult, that's a great technique. All right? Just go find some verse, rip it right out of its context, make it say whatever you want it to say, and voila, you could probably convince some people that that sounds good, and, and you, you can start your own cult, and everyone will follow you. But if you want to follow Jesus— and you want to really adhere to what the Bible's truly saying, then you can't do that. You've got to keep the passage within the context around, as well as how does it fit in the broader book, and as, as well as the broader all, all of Scripture. And try to do what you can to keep it inside of the culture that it was in. How, what did God intend for the original audience? Right? That's keeping it in context. And so for me, that means I can't just start right here at 13, I kind of got to skip back and look what was being said before this point. For us, since we've been studying this for a while, that means we've got to go back to November, back to chapter 12. We did a series called Gifted, where we looked at the spiritual gifts. Paul writes to the Corinthians. He's saying, guys, I don't want you to be ignorant on this topic. This is important. I want you to understand that if you follow Jesus, God has given you the Holy Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit has then given you a gift some gift to give into the church and to be a blessing to others. But what was happening was the Corinthians were starting to see some gifts as being more important. I think we, in our day and age, still do the exact same thing. If you go to a church where there's a really gifted communicator of, of the scriptures and, and he just opens up the, the word and, man, he just starts preaching and people are like, wow, that's just awesome and amazing. What happens is you start elevating that one gift to the point that you think that's the gift that matters the most. And what can happen then is the person sitting out in the pews sitting there going, oh, well, I just have a spiritual gift of helps. I just work behind the scenes. I guess I just don't matter as much because I can't do that. And Paul's point in chapter 12 is that all the gifts are needed. And to help understand that, he gives the illustration of a body. And he starts saying that if all the parts were an eye, then where would this, you know sense of hearing be? Like, you wouldn't have a body. You would just have an eye. Or, or if everyone was an ear, then where's the sense of smell? Like, for a body to be a body, you have to have all the components. And for Riverwood to be a healthy church, We've got to have some people be feet to help us get out of just our gatherings, to get out into the community. 
We've got to have some people be hands that just come in and do the work of the ministry, that just get in there and help it get done. We need people to be ears, to listen to the hurts of others, to be empathetic and know what's going on. And we need some people to be eyes, to help us see where is it we're going, which direction is God calling us. We've got to have all the gifts for us to be a healthy body. And so for Paul to try and help the Corinthians get that, he starts talking about, well, he starts ending his chapter 12 with a bunch of questions. He starts saying things like, are all prophets? Well, the, the obvious answer is no. I'm sure some of the Corinthians were sitting there going, well, no, but I wish I was. I mean, if I, if I was an apostle, that would, be, that would be phenomenal. I mean, the apostles, they get to travel all around, and they're planting churches, and they're doing miracles. I mean, they just put their hands on someone, and they're healed. I mean, that would be so cool. And Paul would probably just be shaking his head going, you've got to be kidding me. You do not want to be an apostle. I mean, it's hard. It's not like jumping on an airplane, flying first class. I mean, they were taking ships. They're walking long distances. They've got to endure the weather. They're poor. They, they, you know, they, they're mocked. People beat them. I mean, it's no fun being an apostle. And so he's saying, are all apostles? The obvious answer is no, because most people can't handle it. Then he goes on, are, are, are all prophets? Well, no. Do, do all speak in tongues? Do, do all have, you know, these certain gifts? The answer is no. Paul then finishes chapter 12 by saying, now, now that you understand this, let me show you a more excellent way. And that's how he begins to talk about love. But I want you to notice, chapter 13 starts off still talking about spiritual gifts. In fact, in these first three verses we've read, he still mentions six different spiritual gifts. The first one he mentions there is tongues, right? There's a lot of controversy in the church today about what tongues are. In the scriptures, the word tongues just meant languages. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, when Jesus has ascended back to heaven, all the disciples are, are together, they're, they're worshiping, they're praying, and then there's this sound of rushing wind, and these flames descend just out of nowhere, put right onto the people. And as they do, they suddenly start talking in these languages that they'd never learned, and yet they start praising God. And that sound of rushing wind was heard throughout the city. The, the Jewish feast of Pentecost was going on. So all these people had traveled in Jerusalem. And so they heard this crazy sound and start going, what was that? And so they kind of rushed to the area, and then they hear this noise going on inside the building. And they hear all these disciples praising God, but they're praising God in all of these languages. And the people are going, whoa, 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 wait a second. That, that guy's Galilean. How does he know my heart language? How does he know my home country's language? How is this possible? Because God gifted them with this gift of tongues so that they could go and preach the gospel about God's greatness to other people in their heart language. Now, the controversy is, does that gift still exist for today? Some would say yes, some would say no. There's all, all varieties of ideas. But Paul's point here is, this is someone who's gifted with language. Now, some people would argue that it could also be like a spiritual gift of teaching. Someone who gets up front to teach the scriptures. If they're gifted at it, that would be some sort of gift of tongues. All right? The main point is, he identifies the spiritual gift, tongues. All right? The next spiritual gift we see is a prophecy. In verse 2, he talks about prophetic powers. Prophecy has a dual role to it. It's not just foretelling what's to come. Most prophecy is forthtelling. It's telling people exactly what they need to hear in that moment. That's kind of prophecy, forthtelling. 
But he goes on. He also talks about um, understanding mysteries and all knowledge. Back in chapter 12, he used a phrase called word of knowledge. We, we talked about how for some, that might be you're in conversation, and God suddenly shows you what a question to ask, or he gives you just a bit of knowledge and insight into someone's life. And, and so you might be meeting with someone, and all of a sudden, you just know the right question to ask. And so you ask the question, and the person looks at you going, how did you know? And you just kind of shrug like, God? And sure, they're going to probably think you're crazy, but yet in that moment, you realize God's using you. It's for their good and for their benefit. And Paul's identifying this as a spiritual gift. And then he also talks about a spiritual gift of faith, all right? And he uses the Jewish phrase there of to remove mountains. Uh, that, that was a very Jewish idea that you talk about having faith that could move mountains. It means overcoming the difficult, I, I look at Jeff and Linnell, and I think they must have a spiritual gift of faith. They are leaving a church where they have a steady salary, where they're loved and respected. They're in a community where they're well-known, and they're up and leaving all of it to come to Waverly, Iowa, where it's a part-time job. He's going to be working another job to help make ends meet. They don't really know anyone except a few of us, and even then it's not super deep. I mean, it's crazy. There, there's people looking at him going, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Because they just have this faith that God is going to do something great. He's calling them. And so they say, we've got to go. And they don't know how it's going to all work out, but they have faith. They have a spiritual gift of faith. And then he identifies two more. Verse 3, he talks about a spiritual gift of giving, of generosity, even if you give away all that you have. And then he talks about like a spiritual gift of sacrifice, even going so far as like martyrdom where you're willing to give your life for this. That takes a gift from God to be able to willing to just lay it all out there. But notice what Paul says about each and every one of them. He talks about them in extremes. Even if you speak in the tongues of men or of angels, where you could talk in the heavenly language, even if you have faith that could move mountains, even if you give up your life, but you don't have love, you're nothing. It's worthless. It doesn't matter. Today I brought a couple of instruments with me. Um, I am primarily a pianist, so I rarely ever pull out my guitar, so I have no calluses. And so if I were to play this beyond five minutes, my fingers would start screaming and hurting. However, if we all wanted to, I could start playing. I think I could play a chord here, right? And if I started playing in such a way, we could all maybe start singing a song together. Mike just successfully, you know, pulled out his guitar, and we all just started singing along with him. Well, most of us sang along with him. Uh, but, you know, we could start playing along here and start singing. Because there's chords here. I could start playing in a pattern, and we'd be able to join in. But notice in verse 1, Paul uses a different instrument as his example. He talks about a gong or a clanging cymbal. If I said, all right, everyone, let's stand and worship Jesus right now. Come on, sing, everyone, let's, come on. We'd all be struggling. Because this doesn't exactly give us some sort of note and foundation that we could jump in. Even if I was able to play it on a steady beat, it would still be quite difficult. In fact, it would be really kind of irritating and annoying. And I wouldn't be a Surprised if a few people didn't start leaving because the crashing would just get so obnoxious. How can we worship together with just a symbol? You see, the guitar would be able to draw you in. 
But the symbol is actually going to push you away. And Paul's point is even if you are the most gifted person in the world, and yet you did it all without love, you're going to be more like the symbol than you will the guitar. Because you're going to actually push people away. You could be a pastor with an incredible gift for preaching. You could stand up and eloquently wax about the gospel and help explain the scriptures in a ways that just open up minds and open up hearts. And yet if you don't love, your spouse is going to know, your kids won't respect you, your church staff would be repelled by you, they'll go on to write biographies about how horrible you were. You might be able to fool the masses, and yet when it comes down to it, the people that know you, the people that would love you, are going to be repelled by you. Paul is not saying the gifts don't matter, but he's saying there's something better. You can't get so focused on just the, the gifts of the Spirit and ignore the fruit of the Spirit. You've got to put your emphasis first on the fruit because that's far more important than the actual gift. I would rather you be incredibly loving and only just so-so in your gifting. Because God will do so much more through you than if you are packed full of gift and yet your character isn't such that you can love. Now Paul is at one advantage over us because Paul was writing in Koine Greek and we are stuck with English and we just have this one word that gets thrown around casually and thus the confusion of what love is. But in Koine Greek, they had at least four words. I found one article that said that they actually had six. But in the scriptures, four different words are used. The first one is storge. By the way, I am not a Greek scholar, so I might very possibly be pronouncing these incorrectly. So don't walk away quoting me exactly. Otherwise, someone who really knows what they're talking about is going to look at you and go, ah, yeah, not, not right, okay? So I'll make it up. Storge. It means just a natural affection. Uh, it, it's like the love that a parent has for their child, or maybe the affection you might have for your dog. Uh, when the Greeks would use this word, they would primarily talk about it in family relationships. When you go into the scriptures, you see this word used by Paul, meaning like the family relationships within a church family. You know, beloved, you know, brother, that, that sort of love for each other. The next one was philia. This was considered a friendship love. It, it was... Uh, where you're considered like equals. Uh, you, you, you respect each other. There's just this trust that's there. Uh, it, it's, yeah, equals. So friendship love. The third one was eros. This is the stuff that's on the top uh, 100 billboard. This is what gets sung about. When, when most people sing about love, this is what they're talking about. This is sexual passion. Right? This is the stuff that people see as love ebbing and flowing, as being temporary, as being a feeling. Right? But then the fourth one was considered the most noble of all the loves. It was agape. Agape merely means unconditional love. And the reason it was considered the most noble of all of the loves is because it was always focused on the other person. Because you see in storge love, yeah, you know, me towards my, my child, I, I love my kids. I'll do a lot for them. But I'll be honest, I, I kind of get some great feelings from it. I, I kind of benefit out of it. You know, philia, you know, I've got some friends that, man, we are great friends, but I, I get something out of it. You know, eros, obviously, you get something out of it. But when it comes to agape, it isn't about what you get. It is all about what you give. And every time you see the word love in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is using the word 
agape. It is not about what you can get. It is all about what you give. That's why Paul is talking about love like it is an action, that love is a verb. It isn't something you fall into. It isn't something that's just kind of there for a little bit and then gone. It isn't just sexual activity. It's this thing that you give. It's a verb. It's an action. It's a force to be put upon other people for their benefit. It is not what you can receive or get out of it. It is all focused on them. And that's love. And that's what Paul is calling us to, to love with an agape love, to love like Jesus loved. Now, if we ended right there, and I was in the seats where you're at, I kind of know what, would, what my response would be. My response would be, okay, then I've just got to go love. I'm going to love Leanne better. I'm going to love my kids better. I'm, I'm going to go to work, and I'm just going to be the most loving guy that, that they've ever seen there. And then two or three days later, or, or honestly, probably two or three hours later, I would just slip right back into the same old patterns that I've been in. I, I'm not mean to Leanne, but I know I could do better loving her, but I'd just go back into those patterns. You know, I, I love my kids. I'm devoted to them, but yet I, I don't love them perfectly. It's not a full-on agape love yet. And I would just slip back into the old patterns. And I don't want to do that to you. I don't want to just send you out, all right, go, try, try your best. Because you see, love is not just a verb. <laughs> love is also a noun. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the only one who ever lived with a true, pure, agape love. When Christ came to earth, it says his attention was on us. Because he saw us as sinners in need of a Savior. There was nothing we could do to earn our way back to God. There was nothing we could do that could repair the damage that had been done by sin. God had to come and do it for us. And so God steps down to earth, takes on the form of man, is known as Jesus of Nazareth, and he goes to a cross. Not because he deserved it, but because we deserved it. He took what we should have taken so that we could now have the life that he intended for us to live. That is agape love. So for you to go and to love your spouse better, purely, for you to love your kids well, isn't just to go try better and get, do, you know, work at it harder. Rather, I think it's to keep your eyes on the one who knows how to do agape love because he's the definition of agape love. And as you keep your eyes on Jesus, now you'll have a better idea of how to love like Jesus would love. We talked in the New You series of how to keep your eyes on Jesus, how to allow God to turn you into this new you, into the image of Christ. And one of the ways we talked about was the scriptures. Some of you are doing Bible reading programs right now. Great. Keep going. All right. We're now into February. If you fell, fell a little behind, so what? Big deal. Pick it back up. Keep going at it. Keep looking at Jesus through the scriptures. Also, I've been encouraging you to pray. Just develop a habit of praying to God throughout your day. Set some time aside each day to just talk with him. Lift up these cares and concerns. Develop this relationship with him. And that will help keep your eyes on Jesus. And he will develop this love within you. Also, get into a growth group. Get into some relationships where other people are going to help you follow Jesus. They're going to help you keep your eyes on him. 
And then many of us were wired differently. Some of us, we connect well with God through song. Some of us, it's by being out in nature. Some of us, when we read a really good book. You know, find the ways that God's wired you and the ways you connect with God. And use those avenues to keep your eyes on Jesus. Because as your eyes are on Jesus, now your eyes are off your gift. It's off your talents. It's off how rich you want to be, on how intelligent you want to be, on how good-looking you hope to be. Instead, your eyes get off yourself to get onto Jesus, and now you begin to love like Jesus loved, and you begin to live out an agape love. And you then help people see that a better definition of love is that love is a verb. It isn't just words, it's action. And now you begin to help people to see what love truly is. So I want to help you keep your eyes on Jesus. I want to give you the love challenge. Uh, right now, Miguel should be handing out a bunch of cards to you, but he just slipped around the corner. So in a moment, I'm going to get you some cards. Uh, on the cards, you're going to see it says the love challenge. And here's what the love challenge is, all right? The love challenge is merely reading 1 Corinthians 13 every day. Oh, there are the cards. Good. Uh, reading the uh, 1 Corinthians 13 every single day, and then every night asking yourself a couple of questions. All right? Just asking yourself, how did I let God's love flow through me today toward others? And as you think of those moments, you start realizing, God did that. And so you take a moment to pause and thank God for that. And then you start asking yourself, when did I not show love? And why was that? Why was I not letting God's love show through me? All right? And by the way, everyone in here can have a card, not just like one or two per family. All right? Every, everyone can have one. Uh, but why is it that God's love was not showing through me? And what do I need to do to make it right? Do I need to go back and apologize? Do I need to maybe give someone a gift? Do I, do I need to maybe change my words? Basically, try to look at it. How am I letting God help me to love like Jesus loved? And when I'm not, why was that? Now, you may be, some of you may be reading the Bible right now. Uh, I want you to keep doing your plan, and I want you to add this on top. Because I timed myself. I read all of 1 Corinthians 13, and, and I tried to read it in just a nice, even manner. Not speeding through it, but not trying to go too slow. Nice and steady. Took me one minute and 12 seconds. All right, so if you're a really slow reader, ah, it might take you a minute and a half. If you're really fast, a minute. So even if you're spending 5, 10, 15 minutes in the Scripture, I want you to add one more minute to your Bible reading time and read 1 Corinthians 13 every day for the next 21 days for all this series until February 28th when we conclude this series. Now you're sitting there thinking, the same passage every day for 21 days? My father-in-law... Uh, well, I'll put it this way. Back at Christmas, all of Leanne's family came to, to visit us between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, so her two sisters, their, their families, kids, and, and everyone came, and, and so did my in-laws. And uh, my father-in-law, his name is John, uh, he wanted to spend a little time with the whole family, sharing some of what he's been learning out of the scriptures. And it happened to be 1 Corinthians 13. And so we humored him. We all got together. He even had a PowerPoint presentation. And we gathered around the TV. And he starts sharing, here's some things that I've been learning. And he admitted, he's an engineer. In fact, for his career, he was a concrete research engineer. Sounds like the most boring job in the entire world to study concrete. 
all right? And he was good at it. Uh, he uh, has, like, he's testified for the FBI in some cases concerning rock that, you know, certain companies sold that actually turned out to be bad. He's spoken at conferences and conventions about concrete. He can tell you the difference between concrete and cement and asphalt. I mean, the guy's an expert at it. But he admits he's very logical. Everything in its place. So he's not touchy-feely. And yet, as he studies the scriptures, he sees this very logical God, this God of order. And yet, this God is also this God in touch with himself and humanity, that this is a God of love. And so John realized, I've, I've got to understand God better. So he began to read 1 Corinthians 13. And he admits he didn't understand it. He could read it, he could see the words, and yet it just wasn't hidden here. It was all a up here thing. And so he began to read it every day. And I just found out over Christmas that he has read this passage, this chapter, every day for the last eight years. And it has changed his life. That's why I'm challenging you to read 1 Corinthians 13 every day for just 21 days. If you want to keep going and go eight years, by all means. But at least give it 21 days. And my prayer is that during those 21 days, as you study God's Scripture, as you keep reading it, letting Him reverberate these words through your mind and your heart, He will develop more of an agape love through you. Because as you're reading it, you're reading about love. And who was it that was the most loving person ever? Jesus. That's getting your eyes on Jesus. Off of yourself, off of your giftings. So now you can begin to love like Jesus loved. So I encourage you, I challenge you, do the love challenge. Take the card, put it somewhere where you'll see it. Set an alarm on your phone every morning reminding yourself to read 1 Corinthians 13. Set an alarm for every night reminding you, hey, just answer the reflection questions. And just take a look. How am I doing? What is God doing through me? And seek after Jesus so that you will then love like he loved. Because I believe that when you stop just buying into the definition that the world has of love, and you begin to have it redefined in a way that God has it defined, it will change your life. You will find it impacting your marriage. You'll find it impacting your parenting. you find it'll change your relationships at school. It'll change your relationships at work. It'll change your relationships with your neighbors. Because you will not be looking at relationships for what can I get out of it. Because you'll realize, I already have all the love I need. God loves me. Jesus died on a cross for my sin. And so because I am loved, I can go and love. I can love like Jesus loved. I can give agape love because love is a verb. And Father, I just confess I cannot do this in my own strength and power so I ask for you to just fill me, empower me with your Holy Spirit so that I would love my wife the way you would call me to, to love my kids the way that, that I need to, to, to love those that I interact, whether it be at work or in my neighborhood or in the exchange club or wherever. Lord, make me a loving person. But God, I also pray for us here at Riverwood that we would love each other well that we would not be the type of people that look at churches or what we can get from it, but instead that we would come together and say, what can I give into this? How can I love this family that's hurting right now? How can I be a blessing to someone who, who's going through a difficult time? How, how can I help this person overcome their obstacle? That we would not look at this of how can I get Philly a friendship love, but instead how can I give agape love? 
But God, to do that, we realize it's, it's difficult. It's hard. That's why we need Jesus. So help us to keep our eyes on Christ. Help us to take up this love challenge and to look at you through your scripture, through what you've written through Paul so many years ago to those Corinthian believers and help us to see that there's something better than just being very gifted or being very talented or being good looking or having a certain amount of wealth or having a certain type of reputation. There's something better and that better is love and love is defined by you. So God, help us to be agape lovers. Help us to love like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.